If you have your copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to John chapter 3. Today is Good Friday, a day that we remember the death of Christ on the cross. And as we are here, even as Christians, uh, but especially if there are any non-Christians here, uh, the most important question we should ask today is, why are we here? Why are we thinking about the cross Why are we celebrating the cross? Why did Jesus die on the cross? And if you read books or newspapers or magazines or watch television documentaries, you're going to get all kinds of answers to that question. In fact, uh, one uh, man who was raised in an evangelical, I think even a Southern Baptist church, and who uh, in college began questioning his faith and is now an ardent voice for skeptics and atheists and humanists everywhere, Bart Ehrman, recently put out a book uh, basically trying to dismantle the storyline of the Bible and Christian belief and about how the later church assigned uh, the divine status and the significant, saving significance of Jesus' death on the cross. But the question is, what does the Bible say clearly and consistently when it comes to answering this question? It's interesting that you have four different Gospels at the beginning of the New Testament, four different authors telling the same story but with different audiences in mind, and yet all of them say the same thing when it comes to who Jesus is, why he was here, what he came to accomplish, and specifically why he died on the cross. They are clear and consistent in saying he died for sinners. He died to be a savior. Where did they get that? Well, they got that from Jesus himself. It is not a message that human writers came up with, but one that the Son of God himself preached and taught not only before his death, but afterwards as well when he came back to life. And this morning what we want to do is look at a passage where Jesus makes clear what he intends to accomplish, what he expects to happen when he goes to the cross. The context here in John 3 is Jesus having a conversation with a man named Nicodemus. He has come at night. I think John is telling us for two reasons. One, he comes in darkness. He comes in spiritual night. He doesn't have a clear understanding of who Jesus is. And yet he also comes literally at night because he's also a little bit fearful of his fellow Jewish leaders. He, he thinks there's something to Jesus and he wants to investigate. And so he comes to, to explore with Jesus more about who he is, and he comes really to put Jesus to the test. But what winds up happening is that Jesus puts Nicodemus to the test in terms of his understanding of the Old Testament. He is called by Jesus the teacher in Israel. I don't think that 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 specific article, that definite article, the or the, is, is just happenstance. Jesus is saying, you are the first among the teachers of Israel, and yet you don't understand what I'm here about? You don't even understand something as basic as the new birth. And so he takes him back to the Old Testament to a story that happened in the history of Israel, one that Nicodemus would have been very familiar with, to be able to say, this is what the Messiah is going to be. This is who the promised Savior is going to be like and what he is going to accomplish 
He points Nicodemus back to Numbers 21. There, uh, in the course of the history of Israel, Israel is wandering around in the wilderness. They've been redeemed from Egypt, and yet they have refused to trust God. They have refused to do what they promised to do, which was worship and obey Him. And so God is allowing them to struggle, to wander in the wilderness for 40 years that the next generation might come to the promised land. In fact, what we see is pretty astonishing that they would not believe God, that they would not trust Him to provide for Him, considering all of the powerful miracles they had just seen Him do uh, a few Uh, not long before this, in delivering him from Israel. They saw the Nile turn to blood. They saw the sun go dark in the middle of the day. They saw all kinds of pestilence and plague brought on Egypt, their captors, but not on them living in Goshen right next door. They even saw the Red Sea parted, not as is portrayed recently in a movie in uh, in much uh, mud and muck, but on dry land as they passed through. And yet they still could not trust God to provide food for them could not trust God to provide protection for them. And so in Numbers 21, we read that from Mount Hor, the people of Israel set out by way of the, to go to the Red Sea, to go to the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food that is the divine manna of heaven that God was providing to them. No work involved. You wake up and there's a free loaf of bread on your lawn. And yet, they despised it. Then, in response, the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. And they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he might take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. And this passage from Numbers 21 is a dramatic story of sin and judgment, but also redemption. God does take pity in response to the prayer of Moses who intercedes for Israel. He provides a means of salvation. But Jesus tells Nicodemus it's more than just an account of God's mercy to Israel. He says in John 3 verses 14 and 15 that just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, I know you know this passage well. I know you know the scriptures well. But you need to understand, this is what Messiah is going to be like. He's not going to be what you think he is. He's going to be like that bronze serpent that was held up in the wilderness. The object of faith in God's promises. And just as people were dying around Moses and were healed and lived by looking to the serpent and trusting God, so the Savior, the promised Messiah, the Son of Man, when he is lifted up, He will be the object of saving faith as well. This is what Jesus is telling Nicodemus in this passage. And this is what we need to understand today. The cross tells us about who Jesus is and what he accomplished. He was lifted up on that cross just as the serpent was lifted up on the pole that he might become the savior of all who would turn to him in faith.
And so as we unpack these verses and think more clearly about what Jesus is saying, we want to better understand, believe, and delight in the the greater redemption that God brings us today through Christ. So four observations from this text. First of all, Jesus was lifted up to be the source of our salvation. Jesus was lifted up to be the source of our salvation. Many people today like Jesus. You see his name invoked in Academy Award speeches. You see people walking around with t-shirts that say, Jesus is my homeboy. Uh, I frequently get uh, catalogs that have the little statue of Buddy Jesus that still apparently is selling well to go on your desk or in your car. I think the reason people like Jesus, even think he is cool, is because they don't really know him. They've never actually read the New Testament. They've never read a gospel account. In fact, I was just uh, reading another sermon uh, about a lady who, in a secular context, had given her students in an English lit class selections to read. She had specifically assigned them out of the book to read Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in the King James language. And it was amazing the amount of res- the kind of response she got. From this, many people didn't actually know it was the words of Jesus. Some considered just a religious essay that was outdated and impossible to keep. One person said, "This made me feel guilty and like I can never live up to this perfect standard." People would always have that response if they actually listened to what Jesus said, if they actually read the Bible. But what they do is they hear snippets, things like do not judge or love your neighbors. And they think Jesus was a great moral teacher. He was a friend of humanity like Gandhi or Martin Luther King Jr. But the problem is the Bible never presents Jesus as that. The Bible never presents Jesus as as just a nice man or a moral teacher or even a great prophet. Before he was even born, his father is told, you need to name him, you will name this boy Jesus. The Hebrew Yeshua, which means the Lord saves, or the Lord is salvation. Why? For he, your son, Jesus, he will save his people from their sins. Jesus didn't hold himself up to be a great teacher. What he held himself up was the prom- as the promised Messiah as the one Savior that humanity needs in order to be right with God. And so likewise here he says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. In Numbers 21, the serpent was held up as the source of people's salvation. Likewise, on the cross, Christ was held up as the source or the means of salvation. Everything that Jesus did, everything that he said, was based on this single purpose to fulfill God's will and to offer himself up as the source of salvation. How did he do this? Well, specifically we see that through the cross, Jesus was lifted up to be a curse for sinners. Jesus was lifted up to be a curse for sinners. I think when you really stop to think about this verse, particularly if you've read the Bible much, is the the kind of strange fact that Jesus is compared to a snake. From the very beginning, uh, in Genesis 3, uh, the snake or the serpent is always the picture of something evil, something cursed. In Numbers 21, it's the serpents that are sent by God among the people to kill them, to punish them. They are... A means of God bringing his judgment and his wrath on them for their sin. Even in holding up the bronze serpent, he is reminding them of their sin. He is reminding them, even of the means of salvation, that they need salvation because of their grumbling, because of their hostility towards him, because of their lack of faith. And Jesus says, that's me. 
That's me. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. When Jesus was lifted up on the cross, it wasn't just saying, oh, there's the Savior. It was saying, we are cursed. And now He is cursed for us. We deserve judgment. And now He is bearing that judgment for us. Jesus is held up as a reminder of our sin. And there he became the very embodiment of the curse that we all bear because of our sin. In Galatians 3, Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. By becoming the embodiment of that curse for sin, Christ took it upon himself at the cross. Like a soldier who would dive on a grenade for the other men in his unit. So Jesus died in the place of sinners under God's wrath. It's a great mystery. The only sinless man in all of history. Adam had a chance at it and he failed. He was created sinless. And everyone after him has been a sinner. Even Noah, the only righteous man that was found in his day that provided a means of salvation for humanity and the world after he stepped off the ark revealed the sinful nature of his heart, planted a vineyard, grew wine, uh, or grew grapes, produced wine, and got drunk, completely blitzed, showing there is no perfect person anymore. And yet Christ came and lived a perfect life. He was the only man that was ever perfect, the only man who didn't deserve to die under God's curse. And yet there he died, counted as the vilest and worst of sinners under God's wrath. For us, he became the curse of sin for us. And yet in doing so, he became the means by which God saves sinners out from under the curse they deserve. But not everyone becomes saved. Not everyone experiences this salvation. Because the third thing that we need to see here is that Jesus was lifted up in order to be the object of faith. Jesus was lifted up to be the object of faith. Remember in Numbers 21, not all of Israel was saved from the judgment. Some died. In fact, I think many died. And in verse 8 of that chapter, the Lord tells Moses, Make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, when he sees the bronze serpent... He shall live. Those who had been bitten were required to look at the bronze serpent. But I think implicitly it was just more than, oh, look at the serpent and live. It was look at the serpent and trust that God is going to heal you. It was an object that pointed to the faith of God's promise to do what he said he was going to do, namely heal those that were bitten. If the people refused to look at the serpent, if they refused to accept God's goodness, or if they looked at it and didn't believe, then they would not have been healed. Likewise, just as every Israelite who experienced judgment because of their sin was not saved, so also today, not everyone who experiences judgment for their sin will be saved out from under it. Not everyone goes to heaven. The Bible never teaches that. All people will be there one day, whether it's through uh, being associated with the church or whether it's all going up different sides of the same mountain. That's not the biblical message. In fact, Jesus here today says that the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. You know, today we look for many things to bring us salvation, not just in religion, but all kinds of seemingly secular things as well. We look to education. If people just knew more, then the world would be a better place. We look to politics. If, if we could just get the right leaders in office, then this country would be 
a better place. We look to science. If we just do the right research and manipulate the right materials, our lives would be better. We look to money. If I just had a little bit more, then my life would be so much better. But as we look to all these different things, we fail to see the real problem. The real problem is not ignorance or bureaucracy or health care or poverty. The real problem is sin. That's not outside of us, but inside of us, in our very hearts. The reason why bad things happen is because bad people do them. And the reason why they're bad is because they're sinful. It's not just the act of doing something that's bad. That is the evidence, the wellspring of an evil and wicked heart that rebels against God. And that sinfulness brings God's judgment. As a holy and righteous God, He will punish sin. And yet, in His mercy, He offers salvation from that judgment. He offers forgiveness. He offers life. He offers us a chance to escape what we deserve if we turn, look to Christ lifted up on the cross, and believe Him to be the Savior that we need. We must believe God when He promises that Christ is the Savior, the only Savior of the world. We believe God when He says that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And Jesus says that if we believe in Him as Savior, if we look to Him just as the Israelites looked to the bronze serpent and were saved, then we will experience eternal life. And this is the last thing that we want to see from these verses. Jesus was lifted up to provide eternal life. Jesus was lifted up to provide eternal life. Jesus says, the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. The natural consequences of living in a world corrupted by sin is that sinful things happen. Evil happens, wickedness happens, moral evil, natural evil. People are murdered and they die of cancer. That's the the natural effect of living in this world. But worse than that, if we die in our sins, then we really get what we deserve which is not just difficulty in this life, but eternal death, separation from the love and the grace of our Maker, our Creator, God Almighty. And yet, Jesus says, whoever believes in Him will not receive that, but they will receive eternal life. That is, life with God forever. It means life apart from the curse of sin. It means living in fellowship and in the eternal bliss of being counted as His children in the fullness of His love, His mercy, and His grace. And Jesus says we only need to look to the cross and believe. That is, to turn away from our life of sin and trust the promises that Christ has made when we give our lives over to Him. And we will experience this life. Everything that we should receive We don't receive. We get the exact opposite of life under the curse when we look to Jesus and believe Him to be the promised Savior. In 1521, Ferdinand Ferdinand Magellan was in the process of leading the first ships to circumnavigate the globe, attempting to sound the depths of the central Pacific. He had tied together six lengths of lines and attached them to a giant cannonball and lowered that cannonball until the line ran out. It measured over 400 fathoms or about 2,400 feet. And there was still no chance that they were hitting the bottom. And Magellan declared the ocean to be literally unfathomable. So deep that you could not record its depths. Well, 
with sonar and other things we can now, but when we think about Magellan's awe and wonder at the depth of that ocean, at its unfathomableness, surely when we consider the love and the mercy of God in sending his own son, Jesus, to bear the wrath we deserve, to be a curse for us, to die that we might live, then we must say that that love and mercy is also unfathomable. It is not something we will ever plunge the depths of and realize in its fullness just how loving and gracious God has been to us. So today, let's remember the words of Jesus to Nicodemus. Let's remember that Jesus was lifted up just like Moses' serpent serpent was lifted up in the wilderness. Let us remember that Jesus was lifted up to be the source of our salvation, cursed under God's wrath in order to be the object of our faith that we might receive eternal life. Let us believe that and then rejoice in the salvation that Jesus provides. Father, we are so thankful for the message that Jesus gave to Nicodemus all those years ago, a message that we need to hear and understand even today. And so, Father, for those of us that have already believed, Lord, may the grace that you have given never cease to amaze us. May it never cease to bring wonder to our lives. Help us to remember not only the the love that you displayed in sending Christ, but the love that is evident in Christ and his willingness to come. And to be cursed for us. Father, on this day when we remember, even celebrate the death of Jesus, help us never to separate that in our minds from why he came. He was not just a good man who was martyred. He was not just a good man suffering the victims of circumstances. No, he was a willing sacrifice for us. Father, when we consider that, may we... May we be lost in awe and wonder at the unfathomable riches of your love and grace towards us. And may that move us to worship you with our lives. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.